Hi everyone, this is Josh from the Narrate team. In the fourth week of Narrate series, Gifting Wonder, Adam asked the question, what's the value of creating space for wonder in your relationship with God? We're shown parts of the text that describe the greatness and wonder of God. So for those of you that are guests with us, uh, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. Thanks for taking the risk of being here. And listen, if there's anything we can do to help you, there's lots of people who would love to answer questions. You can find me up here afterwards. Though There's more qualified people in the lobby and probably the person you came with. So hope it's worth your risk. And just let us know if there's anything we can do. And for those of you that are uh, regulars, this is home. Uh, thanks for serving God and Helena with us and all you invest in this place. It's an honor to be the church with you, even though it's oftentimes serving people that we don't know the results, like my friend Joe there uh, that I just shared. And you know what today is? T- today I was just thinking up there, uh, because last this last Friday we started talking about Easter uh, on the creative team, because uh, it's not very far away. It's, it's March 27th, so it's like you get back. And it's, but you know what today, you know what's, you know what's 54 weeks from today? Christmas 2016. It's not very far. Wow, we got to get working on that. So if you are a guest with us, we, we, uh, we, you're kind of catching us at the end of the movie, and that's okay, but just by, by way of kind of quick catch-up, we started this series several weeks ago called Gifting Wonder, and really what we've been exploring is that perhaps the greatest gift that we've ever received and that we could ever give is the gift of sincere interest in another. You know, when we remember things about people and follow up with them and ask more than we talk and uh, lean forward... And then after kind of provoking that conversation and hoping to change the way we interact just a little bit in friendship and at Thanksgiving and on Christmas and those types of things, we, we turned the corner and we asked this question of what, what if that also applies to our relationship with God? I mean, what if, and, and, and part of where I, th- I think that this is tricky is, especially if you traffic within the church culture, it's so often about what we know and what we believe and what we know is true and what we know isn't true and what we know about God and what isn't true of God. And I think, I, I hope part of what we've been exploring is what if, what if vital, a vital part of a healthy relationship with God is also being clear on what you don't know and being clear on all that you might know someday but that you currently don't? One of my idols, Dallas Willard, uh, he, he said very famously years ago, he said, I, I think when I die, I'm going to arrive on the other side of that veil and, and learn that I had far more wrong than I had right. And I think that's important coming from him because this isn't a guy who's just kind of haphazardly went like, oh yeah, I believe in God and never opened the scriptures. This is a guy who spent his life studying philosophy. He taught philosophy at the University of Southern California, who is one of the more respected theologians of our lifetime, who at the end of all that is going, listen, there's some stuff I know and there's some stuff I don't. And even some of the stuff I do think I know I don't have right. And so we've just been trying to explore what what is the value of wonder in our relationship with God. And this morning, my one goal is to provoke us in that stream as we head not just towards Christmas, but also toward communion this morning. And and maybe one way to start would be just to to start thinking in opposites, because I've talked so much about wonder now that I probably can't say anything that'll actually like jostle your thinking. But, but, But if you were to assign the opposite word, the antonym to the word wonder, what word would you use? Let's hear a few. Fear? Oh, wow. Confusion? What, what, what comes to mind? The opposite of, of wonder. Doubt? Apathy? Is that what you said? Yeah, wow. You're a deep bunch. You should teach. Just, 
Or how about this? Uh, one of the best Bible study tools that I was ever given, I was 20 years old, a new follower of Jesus, and Stan Simmons uh, shared with me that one of the best things that you can do when you're studying a text is try to draw it, which is problematic if you don't fancy yourself an artist. But the idea was that it evokes part of your brain that, that otherwise aren't used. So, so if, maybe put it this way. If you were to draw two people in conversation or a person in, and God in conversation, a prayer uh, conversation, what posture would you give a person who had wonder, and how would that be different than a person who didn't? I mean, what would they be doing differently with their shoulders? Maybe even with their eyes and their eyebrows? Would they be leaning in? Would they be leaning back? Or, or how about this? If you were to assign color, like if you were to assign color uh, to wonder and color to the opposite of wonder, how, how would those color or colors be different? See, I hope what you start to see here is, is wonder is counterintuitive because there's a, there's a beauty to it. There's a value to it. There, there's something desirable about it, even though it doesn't seem like that's what we would value. And I guess the question that I want to ask is this morning, I just want to take one more swing at this question. What, what's, what's the value of incorporating wonder in our relationship with God? Maybe another way to ask it is what's lost if we don't? Uh, and there, I, I think this, the, the book of Ecclesiastes can help us quite a bit. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, th- there's some famous songs from that book that you may be familiar with. Simon, was it Simon and Garfunkel? That they, they, so you've, you've heard it even if you've never read it. But where the book of Ecclesiastes is helpful is anytime you're going through a transition... Anytime one season of life is ending and a new one is starting, whether someone has passed or you're about to retire or you're about to start something, whether you're moving from one city to another or from having no kids to one kid, whatever that may be, maybe you have a kid in high school now, Ecclesiastes is your go-to because it's written by a guy who's reflecting upon a new season, a necessary ending in life, and he's looking back and he's just simply doing the human work of reflecting upon what mattered and what didn't, what was a good use of energy, what was a bad use of energy. And this summer, that, that's kind of a habit I have in the, in the summer. I think it's part of me doing my job well and leading well as I kind of am in this reflective stage. And so I read through Ecclesiastes and it was actually from chapter five that this series was actually born because I had this very troubling experience in Ecclesiastes five. Listen to this. Uh, chapter five, verse one, the, the author says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, house of God, of course, is referring to the temple. And I just want to park here for just a second because there's like, guard your steps. Why? Well, we have a couple pictures here of the temple mount. Several decades ago, they actually unearthed a set of stairs up to the temple mount. And there's something that I want you to notice about those stairs that initially struck the archaeologists. Go ahead to that next one. It initially struck them as odd, but it quickly made sense. Now, you can see the, the ones in the foreground are what they've added in, and the ones in the background are the original ones. But what archaeologists discovered was that the steps aren't like the ones in your house. Do you see that? That there's a different depth to what is it, every other stair? And if you ever walk stairs like that, you can even just imagine, like, that's an uncomfortable stair to walk. And what they discovered was it was, it was the value found in Ecclesiastes 5 and other places that caused them to build the steps like this. Now, it doesn't seem that God commanded them, but they were so serious that, that when a person was headed up to the temple, they wanted to break their stream of consciousness. Like, you, you can sprint your stairs, right? You can even go every other on your stairs. You, you go up and down stairs without thinking about it. You don't, you don't think about running up and down stairs, but not these stairs. Now, ADA hadn't been there yet, even though it's there now. 
But what do you suppose, what kind of posture do you suppose a person takes on when they walk up those stairs? See, the, the archaeologists noticed that it would be almost impossible to walk these stairs, especially if you were someone from the Galilee who might make one trip to the temple in your entire life without looking at them. And so your posture is already down and, and somewhat subdued. And what are you thinking about? See, they, they speculate, based upon texts like these, that, that part, of, part of the impetus to these types of stairs was to cause people to, to pay attention to where they were going, to who they were about to meet with. They didn't want them thinking about work. They didn't want them thinking about what they were going to do afterwards or who they were going to start in their fantasy lineup. They just wanted them thinking about God. Now listen to, to, to the way that this, this continues. Go near to listen. Okay, fair enough. And then look at the next, like look at what the opposite of listening is. Rather than the offer the sacrifice of fools who do not knew, know what they do wrong. I had kind of a crisis this, this spring because of this verse. I can still recall sitting over there going, I don't want to go talk. Because I had this terrifying realization that I talk so much about God that I've fallen prey into that horrible thing where I think that if everybody just adopted my ideas about God and life, the world would be fine. And here this author is reminding people like, no, 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 no. Slow down. Pay attention to what you don't know, not just what you do. Listen to verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you're on earth. So let your words be few. There's this kind of like, whoa, slow down, right? This, this sense of humility, this reminder. And remember, these are people who, who, who would have memorized the text. Like, we don't even read Leviticus. They would have memorized its every word. So these aren't people who were sloppy in what they can know about God. And yet there's this deep, reverent reminder of what they don't know about God. And so we ask this question, what's the value of wonder in our relationship with God? And I wonder if part of it is we remind ourselves that we know God, but we've not mastered him. Like we have relationship with him because of the cross, but that's because of who he is, not because of who we are. That he's not our homeboy and he's not our buddy that he's the sovereign king of the universe who in his grace has made friendship with him possible, but he's not human and he's not our equal and he's not our chum. It's like, it's like eating gummy bears with the president, right? Like, like playing put around with the, I don't, I don't even know how you begin to put this into form, but, but we are so yoked to an unequal. That's the idea. What, what, if, what if wonder creates reverence and it causes us to, to be confident about what we do know, but to live in this constant posture where we're reminded, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't own him. I don't have a corner on that market. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright points out that in the text, when people, uh, when they come face to face with God, they either die or come really close to dying. There's this thing and we don't have a word for it. It's, it's, it's reverence. It's the fear of God. I don't know what it is, but, but it's this reminder. See, see, they're creating this situation. When you're walking the temple steps, remind yourself of just how foreign God is compared to you. And I think for a church like ours who works so hard to eliminate stumbling blocks, and listen, I'll take a bullet for that. 
But I just think it's fair to assume that we struggle with this more than most because our whole mantra is the accessibility of God. You know, Stan Simmons, uh, when I was a new follower of Jesus, he leads this church in Billings. Some of you know him. He's led here and influenced this place or taught here. Uh, I, I, for some reason, I recall him saying when I was a new follower of Jesus, sitting in the back row of this thousand-person auditorium, he said, I've spent the first half of my ministry teaching people not to fear God. And I'm now aware that I'll spend the last half of my ministry teaching people to again fear God. What, what, if, what if part of the value of wonder is we're reminded of, of who he is and what we do and don't know. And what if there's value in that? Uh, Greg Boyd, I referenced some of his work. I know he's controversial. Some of his stuff is quite helpful. Uh, he, he's the first one to introduce me to, to this uh, phrase called the map is not the land. Uh, and the map is not the land. It is a psychological device. It's also something you've experienced, especially those of you who can remember a world before the iPhone. And even with the Google Maps, there's this sense of like, someone will give you directions and they'll go, but don't follow Google Maps because it's wrong right here, right? <laughs> the, the map is not the land is, okay, like the thing you hold in your hand is different than when you get out in the hills and you start hunting. Uh, my my rem- memory of this is when I was, I think I was 21 years old. Teresa and I were part of a, a group of leaders who were leading a, uh, three van loads full of high school and middle school students uh, to, to Tijuana, Mexico to serve people. And, and we were with these group. There was a couple guys on the trip who had been on the trip, and I was on the trip because I was actually going to have to lead the trip the following year. And I, I mean, th- th- this is, we drove from Billings through Salt Lake and St. George to San Diego, and then we crossed the border. And I think we even have a picture of the border. It's harrowing. Now, this was pre-9-11, and so part of the instruction was, uh, it, you know, we had three vans. Front van had a, a little construction trailer. Back van had a little construction trailer. One van didn't. Uh, I was in the second van, not driving it. Uh, there was another guy in it. Nobody in our van uh, had ever been there before, nor did anybody in our, our van know Spanish. But the instructions were that when you get up to the little light, you know, if it turns red, it means pull over to the side, and they're going to search your vehicle. Uh, cavity search, all that kind of stuff. And then the g- g- green light means just keep going. And so the, the idea was that if the front vehicle gets stopped or the one, if any of us gets stopped, I mean, this is like army rangers, like no man gets left behind. We all pull over and we stay together. Front van went through, got the red light, pulled over to the side. We went through, I mean, it's crazy to think about this today. Like it was driver hands his driver's license. That was all you needed to get through. We got the green light. Our, our driver panics and hits the gas pedal and just powers right on by the van in front of us. Problem was we didn't have a map, not technically. What we had was a Xerox piece of paper with a hand-drawn map and a series of turns, like take a right here and then go 4.6 miles and then take a left here. And we were going about 20 miles out into the boonies outside of Tijuana, Mexico. And we missed our first turn. And this was the type of map where if you miss the first turn, like lay on the ground and cry because there's no frame of reference. You had no idea what the next right turn was because all it told you was where you were supposed to go. I knew we missed the first turn when we were in downtown Tijuana, surrounded by people, and we were never supposed to go anywhere near downtown Tijuana. So this is one of my first memories of anxiety. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the front seat, and there's this high school senior behind me who's like, uh, her name was Amy. I can speak Spanish. I can speak Spanish. We're like, no, you took two years of Spanish in high school. You can't speak Spanish. We, we, there's no cell phones. We didn't have a clue what we were going to do. Finally, I convinced the driver that the only logical thing would be to cross the border and go home. <laughs> so we did cross the border, 
And then we went back. This is how much t- things have changed. You would never do this today. We crossed the border and then went back across the border because the only hope we had was following the map. And we knew we missed the first turn. And so when we got the first turn right, it was horrible. It's absolutely. That, that's the map is not the land. It's this reminder that what you have in your hand is different than the real thing. What if the temple steps, what if the author of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life is reflecting on the fact that this, this thing I've constructed, this theology I've put together, even the sacred text, though helpful and poignant, it's different than the same thing. And what if there's value in remembering that? Maybe the question is, is there still wonder in your relationship with God? In Revelation chapter 4, uh, there's a picture created. Probably all of you have used that phrase, uh, if I were a fly in the wall. This is a good lunchtime conversation. If you could be a fly in the wall anywhere, where would you want to be a fly in the wall? Kind of fun, huh? I, I would choose Dove Valley in the meeting rooms at the Denver Broncos because I think there must be so much leadership and strategy. A week of meetings leading up to a game. Can you imagine how fun that would be to just listen and go like, what are they really saying about Peyton Manning? That's what I want to know. Like, what's the real story? I just want to be a fly and, and hear that. Anyway, so what, what the Apostle John does is he allows us in the book of Revelation to be a fly on the wall. Listen to this. After this, oh, let me say this too. The book of Revelation is, is intimidating and daunting and misaligned and often abused. What, what it is is a bunch of symbols, and the symbols aren't the real thing, but when you understand the symbols, you better understand the real thing. That's the idea behind uh, the book of Revelation, not billboards predicting when the world will end. After this, I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Maybe the question is, is this the God that you believe in? Or is the God you believe in much more whittled down, much more trivialized, much more manageable, much, much smaller. You know, household idols are idols because they're perfect. They're perfectly understood. Everything's explainable by them. So much so that you can hold them in the palm of your hand or contain them in your house. Maybe the question, as you head into Christmas this year, 
is simply, is this the God you believe in? Is he still that big, that beyond comprehension, that knowable and unknowable, that holy and altogether different than you? N.T. Wright says it this way in a great book that I also referenced on your mind map. He says, faith is always down the road of an enlarged view of God, of you constantly checked and revised in the light of the text or the Bible. You know, what's interesting to me is early on in this text, uh, John, uh, he, he gives the context for the entire thing. He, he tells us what's really important. In verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He wouldn't even dare use a symbol. Just someone sitting on a throne. And it tells us the first important thing that John thought we needed to know, that this, this being is sovereign. He's king. And then he describes the area around him with jasper. And then he uses this weird phrase, like, like an array of rainbow around him, which scholars will tell you was a Jewish reminder that this God on the throne is also the God of Noah. A God who makes good and beautiful promises to us and always keeps them. A covenant-keeping God. Maybe the question this morning is how big is your God? And are you able to hold in suspense, in tension, what you know and don't know about him? You know, I was thinking this week after connecting with a friend that the hardest part of life is that it has seasons. And man, I'm just getting started. I I get that. And we can really easily resent seasons. I wonder if part of the reason why, why God has designed a life that allows seasons is because seasons, they, they, they jostle our preconceived notions in ways that otherwise maybe we're not capable of doing that. Now listen, everyone here is, is, is either looking ahead at a changing season or smack in the middle of one. Whether you're dealing with death, whether, whether there's a whole new business season ahead of you, whether retirement or starting a business is ahead of you, whether you've got a, a son or a daughter who's about to move into high school, whether you're looking at an empty nest, maybe you got a diagnosis. There's a season, and they're terrifying. Maybe, maybe part of God's design for seasons is that it allows you to take everything you know about him and hold it in suspense with everything you don't. Maybe seasons invite you to, to wrestle with him beyond your convenient conceptions of him in whole new ways. And maybe this life isn't just about getting your ticket to heaven. Maybe it's about developing this relationship with God that continues forever. Maybe he doesn't just wave a wand when you die and make you into the person that he wanted you to be. Maybe that's the purpose of this life. And so the seasons are designed to teach you to trust. The seasons are designed to to teach you to wrestle, to struggle, to want to know and be okay with not knowing. Listen, I I think intellectually it's really easy to assign value to wonder and yet to resent it when it's unfolding real time in our lives. 
Maybe wonder isn't supposed to be just an intellectual exercise, and maybe there are times where we go, okay, I'm going to completely challenge my my notions. I'm going to study this text. I'm going to do something completely different. Maybe sometimes it's just about embracing a new season and reengaging God and the text and his people and asking, what, what did you bring into this season that you knew about him and what's being called into question and what new things about himself and yourself does he want you to know? Listen, if you're someone who is, is new to this idea of exploring Jesus, what, what we wouldn't want to be lost is the fact that there's things we can know. And that's why the cross, that's why the birth, that's why the resurrection is such a big deal. Because in the midst of all the things we don't know is a God who from the very beginning made a promise that he would do what it takes to have a relationship with us. And that's the blood. That's the resurrection. And yet, quite honestly, if you're at this place where you want to start a relationship with God, we think that that's best left in the context of relationship. There's lots of devices we could give you to identify that that's what you want to do that. But at this point in our journey, we're just saying, yeah, but just have a conversation. Talk with the person you're with, find a staff member, shoot us an email. We would love to engage in that conversation. And for those of you who are following Jesus and apathetic, maybe it's because the wonder's gone, and maybe you've got circumstantially in your life what you need to be reengaged by the wonder. You just got to stop resenting it. So this morning, uh, we're we're, going to continue our worship by giving you a chance to reflect through communion, and I hope the no and what we don't know all kind of comes together for you this morning. Let let me pray. God, thanks, God, that in your humility, you endured the cross. Thanks, God, in your humility, you allow those of us who know you to talk too much about what we do know. Thanks, God, in your humility that you're okay with being misunderstood as often as you are. God, our prayer is that this isn't an intellectual exercise for us, but a life-transforming one that allows us to love you and love others better. Amen. If you'd like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.